And you know the first one very well, I'm hoping. Uh, the Exodus, the first one in Egypt for Moses. So I'm not going to put a lot of time into it, but I want you to take, and we're going to read some verses and turn to Exodus, if you would. That makes pretty good sense, I think. We're going to look at a number of scriptures tonight. I'm going to read one passage first and then come back to it later, but I want to read it now. If you're doing the Seder meal, they have the cup, and there are, we have one cup. The Seder meal, the Passover meal Jesus did, had four cups. Um, imagine doing that. We'd be here for a while every night, right? We'd do communion. We were going to do that tonight. But you'd actually have four cups. And of course, it would never go over in a COVID world or any other time in America, but they all drank from the same cup. That probably won't work tonight. Um, let me read you the four phrases where they have four cups. All right? Exodus 6 and verses 6 and 7. And it, there are four I am statements. And we're going to come back and do all four cups in a little bit. But I want to read these first. Therefore, Exodus 6, 6, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. Here's the first one. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. That's cup number one. Okay, number two, that's called the cup of sanctification. Number two, I will rescue you from the bondage. All right, that's the cup of plagues. They call it, some other call it the cup of proclamation or other names that go along with it. The next one, it says in verse number six, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. That is a key phrase. You should memorize that little phrase. Outstretched arm is an Exodus term used throughout the entire Bible, including the New Testament. And you should log it in your mind. I hear that. I should think of Exodus. But that's the third one, and that's the cup of redemption, which we're going to focus on tonight. It was the cup that Jesus emphasized in our New Testament, in the Gospels that Paul emphasized, and the cup that why we do one, that's the cup that we do. All right, and I'll tell you about it. And then the last one was number four cup, verse seven. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. That's called the Hallel cup, or the cup of praise. Uh, Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing and the cup of praise. And uh, so that's the fourth cup that Jesus did not take. All right, now to get a little background quickly um, in the Exodus story, if you'll turn a few more pages to chapter 12. If you're not as familiar as I think you might be with the Exodus story of Moses, I'm going to review for you in verses 11 through 15 and give you what happened on that night. And I just want to get you to see the common things that are there because we're going to need it later to put down Peter's Exodus. Exodus 12, 11, And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, remember this, sandals on your feet, and staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinances. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. That's that feast. On the first day you shall remove the leaven from your homes or houses. 
For whoever eats leavened bread for the first day into the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from the land. So there are some markers that you're going to hear in that passage. And when you hear them, you should think of Exodus or Passover, and that is Egyptian bondage, blood of the covenant, Passover, judgment on the Egyptians. There's a Pharaoh figure always associated directly with the unleavened bread feast. And it's always about families and doing it around the table. So the original Passover, and if you remember, how many of you, I know I'm dating myself again, but how many of you remember Charlton Heston, The Ten Commandments? Does anyone see that movie? Anyone under the age of 40 have seen that movie? Oh, they're, oh, okay. Yeah, right. Remember they have the Passover, and then, then the, like, cloudy, smoky stuff comes down the middle of the street, and everybody's screaming and stuff. Well, it's probably pretty close to being reality in that sense because it says there wasn't a house in Egypt that someone wasn't dead. And so, but you have both the vertical and you have the horizontal. And, and that's the setting for the first Exodus, and that's the Exodus of Moses. Now we're going to fast forward about 1,500 years and getting to where we're going tonight, the Exodus of Jesus in the Gospels. And you may not think of it this way, but I want to maybe... Maybe tune you to think a little bit more this way. So if you would turn to Luke's gospel now. Luke chapter 9. In the middle of Luke's gospel, and it's from chapter 9, and I'm being more vague, to chapter 19, by commentators it's called the travel narrative because that catalogs for us or records for us Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem in those 10 chapters and all of the events in those 10 chapters are taking place on his way to the cross and that's how we view all of those events. And this is a preempt to that trip. If you look over in chapter 9 in verse 30, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. And it says, Behold, two men walked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his, and circle this in your Bible, and this is New King James I mean tonight, his decease or his departure, depending on your version, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. That is the word in Greek, exodus. That's the exodus, actual word, and his departure. Jesus says, here's why I'm going to take this last journey that's going to lead me to Jerusalem, because when I get there, I'm going to accomplish an exodus, and we would call it theologically a new exodus. Now, before we go any further, I want you to know that's not the first time the Gospels talk about Jesus in terms of the exodus. He literally, pretty much every area of his life from the beginning to end has this theme to some degree running through it. If you want to write it down, Matthew 2.15, it's a quotation about his birth, it's a quotation from Hosea 11.1, 1, but it's written by Matthew in chapter 2, verse 15. He says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. So again, out of Egypt, that gives you an Exodus feel to those words, even in Jesus' birth. And then you have the wilderness temptations. How long was Jesus in Luke 4, Matthew 4, how long was he in the wilderness being tempted? 40 days. How long was Israel tempted? 40 years. Why? Why the matching numbers? Because, and it was both in the wilderness, right? And it was all the temptations about eating food, and they had temptations about eating food. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah, and he was everything that Israel was not. And so he, see, in Jesus' birth, Egypt, Exodus theme. In his 
temptation, exodus theme. He's in the wilderness, and the wilderness was what they were doing to journey out of Egypt into the promised land. Jesus, we just read the transfiguration, and he says that here's what his purpose in going there is and dying on the cross, that it's going to bring an exodus. It's going to bring an atonement. It's going to bring what? Freedom from slavery and bondage. Now, the biggest problem they had, and you've heard me say this a bunch of times, is they thought the bondage that was most crucial in their life was Roman bondage. What they didn't realize was it was the bondage they had to their sin. So if you don't have, we don't have time tonight, but if you look at when Moses was up on the mountain and receiving the uh, Torah from God and Jesus was up on the mountain transfiguring, they are so many parallels between the two of them. On a high mountain, they took their friends, a cloud, Shekinah glory cloud and covered them. Moses was at both of them. Uh, Moses was with God and his face shone. Jesus' face shone because he was God. Both had feasts of the booths. Both were exoduses, one out of Egypt, one out of Jerusalem. One, you couldn't see God and live, so he had to put uh, Moses and cover up so he couldn't see it all. But they actually could see God in Jesus' face. It, it, so there are a lot of similarities. And the point is, is that the writers of the scripture want you to understand and look at Jesus' redemption in terms of the exodus for us. So it says in chapter 9, verse 31, that he spoke of his departure as an exodus. Chapter 19, if you would, of John's gospel. Jesus is dying on the cross. He's accomplishing that exodus, that liberation from bondage by dying for our sins. And this is a quotation from Exodus 12, 46, which says that when you find the lamb, and by the way, let me tell you, when you, bought, you got the lamb in Exodus chapter 12, you would buy the lamb four days before Passover. And the reason why you had to have the four days, because you had to inspect the lamb. And you had to make sure that it didn't have a broken leg, it didn't have a blotch on it, it wasn't blind, there wasn't some defect on it. So you'd buy it on Sunday, and you inspect it till Thursday, and then you'd kill it and sacrifice it as part of the Passover on Friday. The Passion Week for Jesus is he enters the city on Sunday, and they have four days. And so you have intense talking, questioning, all the things that Jesus is doing. Why? Because here's what the writers of the gospel want. You're inspecting the lamb. You're inspecting him on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then he'll be sacrificed on Friday, which was the sacrifice of the lamb was at three o'clock in the afternoon. And we're going to read in a little bit. He was sacrificed at the ninth hour, which was three o'clock. So when the lamb in the temple was being sacrificed, Jesus was being sacrificed. And you know why? Because there was no defect in him. To the point, listen, John 19.33 says, again, quoting Exodus 12.46, that they did not break his legs. You know why? It would have made him defective. You couldn't have a lamb with a broken leg. They broke the other ones, but Jesus had already died. Perfect timing. Therefore, he is the lamb. He is the Exodus lamb. He is the Passover lamb. Paul would later say, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, lamb has been sacrificed for us. So, on the night of the Passover, Jesus was with his disciples, and they have a table like this. Now, Leonardo da Vinci had a table that was upright, but they didn't do those kind of tables back then. And this was called, and you can see the shape, 
This would be called a Roman triclinium, and meaning there are three sides to it. Theirs would have been pretty, quite a bit bigger than this, probably. It was in an upper room on the rich end of Jerusalem, not that far, actually, from Caiaphas' house, if history is correct. And a triclinium, and the reason why they had a shape, table shaped like this is because there were servants who would bring in the food, and this would be the entryway for servants. And you would be able to come in this way and, and feed just about anywhere or anyone around the table, and that's where the servants would come in. On that night, as it was, there was always a host at the Passover meal as they celebrated God's atonement, and Jesus was the host. The host would always sit on this side, and he would sit not on the end, but one end from the end. This was the host's chair. And then a good friend would always sit to the right of him, and the Bible tells us that was the Apostle John. There was always a guest, I'm using this lightly, chair, because there were no chairs, but there was a guest seat, and that was the one who was honored above all the other people at the table. You remember when Jesus says that when you go to places he says in Luke 14, don't look for the high seats or the honored seats. Go down to the low seats so that when they come and get you, they can bring you from this to that instead of having you be up in the high seats or the honored ones and have to remove you to come down. Because at feasts and particular dinners, there was always honored seats and there were ones that were not honored. In fact, humble seats, they would have called them. Jesus is the host. John is next to him on the end to the right. And to this side of Jesus at the seat of honor was Judas Iscariot. And that's amazing because when you think of the atonement, uh, Jesus died for sinners. And right next to him, the host would have chosen and he would have had Judas sit next to him on the left-hand side. Now that explains a lot of things. Number one, remember when John leaned over and asked Jesus, it says he laid on his new old King James bosom or it would have been his chest, now, it would have been possible, and you know how now, because around the table, as Kevin has placed them here for us tonight, um, there were large pillows, and that's how you would lay down. I won't do it in my suit tonight, but you would lay down, and you would face this way, and you would lay down on your elbow, and you would lay your legs out this way, and everyone would lay at an angle. So John would have been laying right here, Jesus would have been laying here, Judas here, and John would have been laying, he would have been able to lay back on Jesus and he would say something in his ear and no one else at the table would be able to hear it. So John, now the conversation, if you read John 12 and 13, you'll find out at the table that it was being done that those were the main seats that everybody wanted. At the Passover or any other feast, the one that nobody wanted was this seat on the end, on the opposite side. That was the seat Jesus gave to Peter <laughs> on that night. Now, in the conversations that are taking place at Passover, Peter was trying to get John's attention. Again, bigger table, wider space, more distance, right? John would have been over there, and Peter's trying to get his attention when everybody's talking because Jesus has made the statement to everyone around the table that one of them will betray him. All right? So everybody, again, just, as, just to give you an idea of what Judas is like, nobody said, oh, that's easy, Judas. You're the one. No one said that. Everyone says, is it I? Is it I? I mean, they were all looking around the room and thinking, like, oh my, is it me? I didn't know. I, is that going to really be me? So everybody's asking that. Now, Peter wants to know who it is. Now, give, take this into consideration. He never really considered him to be the one himself, right? 
he thinks it's somebody else right off the bat, which gives you an idea where he was at, right? But he later denies Jesus, so take that for whatever it's worth for you. But he's sitting here, and he's trying to get John's attention on this side. He finally gets John's attention, and John leans back and asks Jesus, right? Who is it? And Jesus says, and you may not have made much out of this, but he says, it's whoever eats and dips the sop with me. The, the guest protocol for the honored guests, when it came time, again, Passover was a meal that everybody had. If we were going to have communion tonight correctly, right, we'd have everybody together, we'd be sitting down somewhere where we all could be seated in a big room together, and we would have a big meal together because there was a whole meal that you ate in fact, remember 1 Corinthians 10? They're messing up and doing, people come, the rich people eat all the good food and leave the poor people because there was a meal going on in someone's house when you had Passover. So John leans by and his back, Jesus says, it's the one who dips the sop. And that is the first sop, the one you dip the bread in was the guest of honor and you gave it to him. Jesus does that and John gets it, Right? But at that moment, uh, Judas also talks to Jesus in probably somewhat of a whisper. And he says, Jesus, like everybody else had done, he says, is it I? And Jesus says, just as you say. No one picks up on that because they're so close together and they're having a private conversation. Nobody else gets it. At that point, Judas gets up and Jesus says, what you have to do, do it quickly, and he leaves. Now, we're going to do this a little later. You know where we get the idea? Why after every deacon or communion we have a deacon's offering? It was part of the Seder Passover meal in Jesus' day all those years ago and preceding him that when you were having Passover meal, someone from your group would do something for the poor. Judas gets up, and the Bible says everyone thought he got up, not because he was going to betray Jesus, but because he was the token person that they thought Jesus assigned. The honored guest got to do something really good for the poor and represent everybody. And so Judas left on that night to do it. That's how this, this meal would have taken place. And lastly, in the middle of the meal, and they're serving it, Jesus gets up, and now hopefully you can see a little bit better, he would have stood behind the table and he would have got down and he would have taken the towel that he was girded or the, the, the cloth that he was girded with. Jesus didn't have a lot of great clothes. If you had a lot of money, you have an inner garment and an outer garment and you'd have a coat. He probably took off his coat and his outer garment and he would have started taking it and he would have gone around and he would have seen, he would have been able to walk around each one of these people and they had their feet sticking out and he would have taken time in a basin and he would have taken it from the table and started to take a towel and he would have washed everybody's feet and he would have run around all the way around the table till the very last person. So when he talks to Peter and Peter goes, you're not gonna wash my feet, he's the last one. Now see, he's watched everybody else be okay with it, but he's not um, until Jesus tells him what it signifies and then he finally is but that's how the Passover meal would have taken place and some of the conversations and things that would have taken place around there as well. During that meal, I told you before, they would have had four cups. The first one they would have drank, and Jesus would have drank from it first, and they would have passed it around. 
um, is the cup of sanctification. What means is that the atonement night is a very special night that has been set apart from all the other nights. So this is not an unusually, this is, I mean, it is a very unusual, unique night because they're remembering the story. Now, what, remember what I told you? This is narrative atonement. Jesus is, his job, and if you take the Seder book, you would know if you're the host, your job is to retell the story of Israel. The Gospels do that. The parables of Jesus are retelling the stories of Israel, but slightly different. So the Passover is not unique in this sense. If you read the, all the Gospels, all the parables of Jesus and stories that he does, he's retelling sto- the story of Israel with himself at the center of everything. Because remember what the story's about? They're memorial, but they're also prophetic because they all look forward and they point to Jesus. So he's going to do what he has always been doing all the way up to this point in his ministry. He's retelling the story of Israel, making himself the center of everything that it points to him. So he comes to this meal, and what you don't see is them eating the lamb. At the end of the second cup, which would be the cup of judgment or plagues or proclamation, that's when they would have begun eating the meal that they would have sat down to do. What you never find is Jesus sharing with them the meal or the lamb because that lamb was absent. There was no lamb on the table. So when they come to the third cup, which be the cup of redemption, Jesus says, this is the cup And by the way, if you looked in Luke chapter 22, it says he took the cup and you hear the words about what it is. And a few verses later in verse 20, he talks about the cup again and they drank it together. But then a few verses later, which most people don't see, in verse 42, he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he says this. He says, Father, if it is possible, we talked about this today in our house, if it's possible, would you take this cup from me? What cup? This cup that he has metaphorically or symbolically drank at the table. But now in the garden, he is realizing in the most graphic details more than he ever has what drinking the cup is really going to mean for him. He is seeing our atonement, him being the substitution for our sins, the sacrifice. He's the Passover lamb that they didn't have at the meal. And he drank the cup. It was easier to drink the cup at the table than it is to contemplate drinking the cup in the garden. It is so difficult for him to contemplate all that it takes as a human being, as obviously God, but as a human, to, to the substitution that he is going to take and the cost that it's going to make him pay for our sins. The Bible says that he starts sweating drops of blood. It is actually a real medical condition that a handful of people in history have had under extreme dire pressure that your blood vessels in your forehead break open. Instead of filling with sweat, they fill with blood that seeps in there, and it looks like you're having sweat come down your head, because it really is. It's it's actually blood. But the contemplation, listen, can I tell you, when we do communion, drinking this cup, the third cup of redemption, and taking the wrath of God and being the propitiation and atonement for our sins was absolutely horrifying to him. He's sinless and perfect. And when he reads and remembers Exodus 6, I will redeem you, he now puts his own life in the phrase of God, he is the I will. 
So he says, not my will, but yours be done. Now, in the Passover meal that they had, there is no record of Jesus ever drinking or mentioning a fourth cup. He does say in Luke's version of the Passover meal that Jesus said, I won't drink this wine until I drink it anew in the kingdom with you. There are many interpretations of what he meant by that, but I think one of the strongest ones is at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, it's the cup of praise. And that's someday that when all the church who has been redeemed and brought out in the exodus that Jesus accomplished for us, right, in Jerusalem, that we're going to drink that cup together when we sit down at a table that is going to be fixed for all of us. And I'm hoping, because there is a heavenly Palm Sunday that's mentioned in Revelation 7, that there will also be a heavenly Passover that we remember, and we all get together with Jesus, and he says, I'm going to drink the final cup, and we're going to celebrate what he's done for us together in the atonement. The third cup, I I should say, the third part of our talk tonight on the atonement is going to be the exodus of Peter. Let me show you what I mean, because tonight's question, that was the lecture. Now let me move over in our last few minutes to the lab part of it. How does that work out for us? And I know that the main application for the atonement is we have been, Jesus has been substituted for us. He is the Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed for our sins, and we're forgiven. Heaven is our home. All those wonderful, rich truths that never get old. But there's a little bit more to it, and I want to emphasize that tonight. If you take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 12. I prompted you for this story by making you endure the reading of the passages and making you remember the Exodus markers. Remember the Exodus markers? The Feast of the Unleavened Bread associated with Passover. The blood, the bondage, the change, the freedom. Remember I told you about the sandals girding your waist, having to do it quickly. Remember all those markers? I want to show you how it works out because I believe one of the misfeatures of Christianity today is that we don't live in the story of God. We read about it, we study it, we know it, we don't live in it. Remember what the original Exodus said? Tell this to your children. Why? Because the Exodus was not a propositional truth. God sent a lamb for us. That is true, but that's not how they view it. It was a story to be told to your children, listen, and lived in. They were Exodus people. See, as Christians, I want you to see yourself in the story tonight. Not just it's a past event, isn't that great? Not just a present event in Jesus' day. Didn't he fulfill it in a wonderful way, in a greater way, the greater Exodus? He absolutely did. But what I want you to see is what Peter does for us Is what he says, I want you to live in the very same story they did, except this one's different in this way, that Jesus is the absolute center of it. And I want to show you what Peter knows about how to apply the Exodus to your life. Acts 12. Now about about that time, Herod, can't read my own writing here, Herod the king stretched out his hand. Remember what God does? What's the Egyptian bondage term. God stretched out his hand, remember? God's going to stretch out his hand, but that's not till later in this passage. Herod stretched out his hand. So think of Herod as Pharaoh, right? Remember there's always a Pharaoh figure? And what does he do? 
He harasses the church. He kills James, the brother of John, with a sword, which means he probably had him, uh, his head cut off. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he seized Peter. And what time of the year is it? Verse 3. Come on, you can say it out loud. I'm good. The day of the unleavened bread. What is our marker? What does that show us? Remember, what is that part of? The unleavened bread is part of Passover, right? Look down to verse 7, I think it is. I'm sorry, not verse 7. So, verse 4. So when he arrested him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to be, uh, let him out, I'm sorry, to bring him before the people when? After Passover. So we have a Herod figure. We have someone being put in bondage. Peter is arrested. It's during the unleavened bread ceremony. It's right around Passover time, right? And what does the Bible say that Peter has and what he's doing that night? Verse 7. Now behold, an angel of the Lord. During the Passover, what came into Israel to deliver them? Yes, the angel of death, right? So Egyptians were judged. Israel was saved, right? The angel comes and gets Peter. What is his condition when they get him? Verse 7. An angel of the Lord stood before him. A light shone in the prison, struck Peter on the side, raised him up. And how, what does he speak to him? Arise quickly. Have you ever wondered that? I mean, the angel is there delivering him. Why does it have to be fat? Why are they running out there? I mean, can he make the guards sleep longer? There's, it's more than just those words, right? Arise quickly, what? And his chains fell off. So what does he tell him to do in verse 8? Gird yourself, tie on your sandals. The exact three admonitions in Exodus that we read earlier. Gird your waist, put your sandals on, and make haste to get out as fast as you can. Those are the procedures of the Passover. So he tells Peter the exact same things, and when he does that, what happens to his chains, which are a picture of his bondage? Oh, they fall off. So what is this happening? The angel is delivering him. This is an exodus for Peter, and I could go on. There's much more to it in, in the passage. In fact, remember what I said? When the exodus takes place, the Egyptians are what? They are judged and Israel is delivered. The same verb is used of Peter as used at the end of the chapter for Herod. Remember the angel comes in the prison, look what it says, and it struck Peter on his side. Look down at the end of the chapter. Verse 23, immediately the angel of the Lord, the same one that struck Peter to get him up, to deliver him, is the same angel that what? Struck Herod, because he didn't glorify God and he was eaten by worms. See the same verb? Peter was struck, delivered. Herod was struck and he died because that's what happens in the Exodus story. Peter's deliverance from prison in Acts 12 is a pattern of the atonement of how God delivers through the Exodus. And can I tell you, how would you make much of that in your life? Here's how. Because God can bring that exodus in any situation you're in. See, God can deliver you. God can work, and I don't want to be too trite, but God can help you in sickness. He can deliver that. He can deliver from sin. He can deliver from bondage of any shape or form. Why? Because our God is the exodus God, and we still live in this story. 
Our God who brought people out of Exodus or out of Egypt, the God who brought all the plagues, the God that raised Jesus from the dead and caused the Jerusalem Exodus to be the greatest of all is the same God who personally works in Peter's life and cares about him, shows the power that he still has that he can bring him out of bondage no matter what it is, even the prison of persecution that Peter was facing. But that's not all that Peter wants to teach us about how to apply the pattern of the atonement. Last one, 2 Peter, his final epistle. If you'll turn there. Do you remember, and someone help me out here, in John 21, Jesus was having a conversation with Peter to restore him back to be a disciple. When that conversation was near its end, Peter asks about John. He asks, what about this one? And Jesus says, if he remains till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now what pushed him to make that question about John? Because in John 21, verses 18 and 19, he says, Peter, I want you to be my disciple again, but I want to tell you something. That when you are old, people are going to what? Yeah, they're going to take you where you don't want to go and they're going to bind you. And here's what the, John writes in the interpretation part of that verse. Jesus said this to what? Symbolize, or signize actually, to be a sign of what death Peter would glorify God. You see, the exodus was Jesus dying on a cross to glorify God, John 12, 23. See, but that's not just for Jesus. It is as far as forgiveness of sins. Of course, only Jesus could do that. But the same language is used in chapter 21 that Peter would die a death, the same kind of death that Jesus died, and that death would glorify God. Can I tell you, between John's gospel that Peter didn't write, all the many, many years later of ministry that Peter had, can I tell you this? He never forgot those words on the beach that day. He never forgot them because Peter, as t- at the end of his life, he starts telling us about remembering it again. And if you could read with me in 2 Peter 1.12, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things that you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, his, his body, earthly tabernacle, to stir you up by reminding, watch, knowing that shortly, in other words, I'm going to die soon, I must put off my tent. What's the next phrase? Just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Remember all those years, and I would guess somewhere around 30 years previous, Jesus told him on the beach, you're going to die like I died. And that's how it's going to go with you. And he says all these years later, remember when Jesus told me that? I haven't forgot it. What does he call it? Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. That is the same word used in Luke 9.31, exodus. After my exodus. See, here's what Peter says. You know what the pattern is? Jesus' exodus that he accomplished for the forgiveness of our sins had a cross in it. He died on the cross, our vicarious substitutionary atonement. He died in our place for our sins. Now watch. 
Peter, you have an exodus, and when you die like I died, you're going to die on the cross. It's not atonement in that sense for the forgiveness of sins because here's what your exodus is. You die in the way that I died because you have taken up your cross to follow me. You know what Easter is about? Easter is about understanding the atonement for our sin, that Jesus paid the price on the cross so that we could have our sins forgiven. But listen, it's not just his cross. The Exodus atonement means we have a cross. Not for atoning for anyone's sins, but because ours have been atoned, we take it up for him. We live the cruciform, crucified life. The application, the lab part is that we all have an exodus coming, don't we? Now, we're all hoping that it's going to be quite a ways off, but we just don't know. And I would hope the last two months has taught you otherwise. But life is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And see, listen, we don't know what tomorrow will bring, but we all know this. We have an exodus that's coming. And the question is, will you live and die the way that Jesus did? Will you take up your cross for him because he took up your cross for you? And that's the pattern of the atonement. There's a cross for all of us. It's dying to our sin and ourself that we might live for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he would have all of us to do. And let me tell you this. I hope that in the future someday that we get together and we could tell our own Exodus stories. Wouldn't that be great? It's our job. It's our job to retell the Exodus story with Jesus at the center. And we could say this. I remember when I was in such, and you know, and this was my life, and this was taking, and listen, Jesus freed me. He released me from the bondage of fear, depression, anxiety, sin. He re, in the Exodus story is being retold and relived over and over. And this Easter, it's our story. It's not Jesus's that we just reenact and somehow it's just his. We are the Exodus people. We are the atonement people. We are the cross people. And he paid for us. And we want to live out and in that story every single day. To remind us of that a little bit more, I've asked Sandy to come and she's going to sing and remind us about taking up our cross because Jesus loved us and wrote it in red.